Greetings. Welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship. Welcome to Wednesday night. So, you know what tonight is? It's the, it's Wednesday. Very good. Yeah, this is it. Uh, we'll go with that. It's the final night. We're going to finish. We're going to actually finish Daniel tonight. We're going to actually get there. So we're going to be doing. Why is it saying chapter five there? I think you got to click on Wednesday and go down to. Uh, I hope it, I hope we're not in chapter five. I'm in trouble if we're in chapter five there. Okay. All right. Um, so. Uh, Let's let's pray and then and then we'll get started. Father, we bless you. We um we invite you to help us tonight to to see what it is that you uh, to hear what it is you would speak to us to see what it is you want us to see in your word. And well, we invite that you would cause your word to be a mirror for us that would be a reflection in and to our souls, and that we wouldn't be the same after we've engaged in your word than we were before father i pray very specifically you help me as we go through this together to to speak to share to say those things that are that are on your heart and to rightly divide the the word you have preserved for us we pray these things and father we pray specifically for gail this evening and she's uh just lost her mom so we just we uh we cover her in uh and pray for your your comfort and your peace uh, through this this coming uh, these coming days. And we bless you and pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so like I said, we're in the book of Daniel. We're in the we're in the last last stretch. We've been using Dr. Wendy Witter's work as our main resource, or some other resources tonight. I'm going to pull a little bit from uh, uh, Joyce Baldwin's uh, commentary on Daniel. And um, we've been pulling from John Lennox. We're going to look at his chart in a minute, and Dr. John Lennox. And so um, different scholars, but the main thing has been the the course that she taught on the subject through Lagos Mobile Ed. And she's got a great uh, – in fact, I actually pulled out her brand-new commentary on Daniel, a detailed commentary. I pulled it out and got a few extra facts and details and kind of woven in there a little bit tonight as well. So highly recommend her and, and that work. So – um, I'm, I'm not going to do the – we're going to do kind of an overview at the end rather than our normal introduction that we do. But I do want to just hit what's the theology of Daniel, the three points of the theology of Daniel that, that kind of lead us in here. The first one is God is what? Sovereign. That's right. His sovereignty, and which leads us to he continually cares for his people. Um, and which leads us to we we get this theology of Daniel from the story itself. It comes out and through the story, and, which is hugely important because that's uh, one of the primary ways the scriptures intend to inform us, to teach us, to speak to us. Um, and so, you know, this is a book of exile, sudden shock, um, and questioning, wondering, where are you, God, in the midst of everything that's hard and difficult? And and God continues to show that he's not only God of Israel, he's God of the, the Gentile kings. And that he has not abandoned his people, even when uh, things are hard and difficult. And he sees his people to and through all things. So um, that's that's the overview. Uh, um, we're using... John Lennox's, uh, Dr. John Lennox's division of the book, 
um, you know, kind of a part A, part B structure of first half, second half. And we see this incredible. The whole point, uh, I, I, the reason I use these charts and these structures and all that is because these speak to us as much as the words. You see that this is genius level writing. This was pre-thought. You know, when Daniel's writing this, he's weaving all this together. We're going to find there's a there's a chiastic structures that are used. Um, there's an Aramaic section. There's the Hebrew section. Um, there's there's correspondence in the way all of these he, uh, 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 chapters are put together. There's a, there's kind of a loose chronology, but he doesn't stick to the chronology when he's got a greater purpose. Or he'll put things out of chronology to speak to us, emphasize something by putting it out of chronology. All these types of things. And I'm pointing it out in Daniel because Daniel's not the only book like that. This is all through Scripture. The Gospels are filled with this. You want to understand the Gospels. When we, when we talk about these things in the book of Daniel, and you'll notice that's how ancient authors wrote in order to make their points is, is very often they're making point by how they're writing as much as what they're writing. And so when we look at this, we have a part A, part B. We have Daniel in the Babylonian court. We have him in the Medo-Persian court. We have these two images, the dream image of the four kingdoms in the kingdom of God, the, the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. Then we get to parallel with that with two visions. We get the four beasts, and then we get the two beasts. We drill down in the visions. Um, Oops. And then we get two kings disciplined and two writings explained. And here we are in this very last section, the writing of truth. This divine man has appears to Daniel after fasting for 21 days, prepares Daniel to hear. Daniel goes through great pain to hear this final word. And here we are with this final word. That, that, um, that Daniel is writing down the longest section, literary section in the entire book, the, uh, so, um, uh, suggesting its greatest significance in the book. And, uh, and we're getting this vision. And we've gone through the vision. We've covered it. We've hit all the highlights in it. And the last thing we talked about was the whole theme of resurrection. So I'm going to pick up just a little bit on resurrection because Daniel, in, the, in, in all of the Old Testament, is the single clearest, most specific reference to resurrection. And we not only have one resurrection, but we have two resurrections. And then right after resurrection, we're introduced to this theme of the, end, the time of the end. What is the time of the end? And so um, we're going to, that's what we're going to break into and then we'll get into the conclusion of the book, and then we'll do a little overview. All right, so picking up uh, um, on Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, the, this divine being is talking to, uh, to Daniel, and he's, he's bringing up Michael, the archangel. Remember, we get a, get a picture in these chapters of spiritual warfare, that there are things going on in the spirit that somehow are corresponding to things going on on earth. We should be queuing into that when we look at world events happening around us right now. There are things going on in the spirit in the same way there are things going on on earth. And they're corresponding to one another. And so we're called to wrestle with what? Not flesh and, flesh and blood, but those spiritual realities bringing the... the um, um, the, the re spiritual reality of Christ to bear 
in the physical reality of our lives. All right, so Daniel says this. I mean, the, this divine man, that being that Daniel's talking to, says this. He says, at, the, at that time, so at this end of time, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So Michael's, who is, who is Michael? He's an archangel, right? He is a, he is a spiritual being who's a, a prince over Israel. He's an archangel, prince over Israel. He is fighting on behalf of Israel. We've already covered this in earlier chapters where, where, where this is being pointed out. And, and he has charge over Israel and he is fighting in the spirit on their behalf. So he's going to rise and there shall be a time of trouble. A time of tribulation such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And we spent quite a bit talking about the books in heaven, how there's multiple books. And the one we're most interested in having our name written in is that one there, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. That's the most significant one. Number uh, verse two, and many of those who uh, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is a physical resurrection for everyone, everyone. Some will. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. Verse three, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the skies above everlasting life. Shining like the brightness of the skies above. Pay attention to that language, because I'm going to show you where Jesus pulls directly from this language. In speaking about the time of the end, because we're going to talk about time of the end. Jesus speaks about the time of the end, and he's literally pulling from this language. Jesus is expecting his audience to know this verse when he talks. And he says, and to those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. And again, in the ancient world, stars are referenced to spiritual beings. Okay? So it's not just talking about the brightness of a star and how long it lasts. They didn't have the scientific worldview. They didn't, you know, they didn't think of stars being billions and billions of years old. That's not their mindset. Their mindset is that's the heavenly realm. And those are the stars watching over. And we shall be shining like that. Watching over. They make a different parallel than we make. Um, all right, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. So he's saying, listen, until the time of the end. Saying, that's it. I've given you all the revelation I'm going to give you. This is it. Seal it up. This revelation is over. And this, is, this will be sealed until the time of the end. He says, what's going to happen at the time of the end? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. If there's ever a time that we live in where knowledge is rapidly increasing, my goodness, the amount of knowledge that has increased just in my own lifetime growing up. You know, when, when I wanted to look something up when I was a kid, my parents said, go over to the bookshelf and pull one of the Funkin' Wagnalls encyclopedias off the shelf and look it up. And every year we would get that extra book that would come from Funkin' Wagnalls that would have the subjects that were updated that you put at the end. Because the books didn't get automatically updated. I remember it was a big, big deal in our house when I was a kid and we got a set of encyclopedias. And, and if, we, if my parents used the word and we said to my parents, what was that word? They'd go, on that bookshelf, there's a dictionary. Go look it up. And now what do we do? We got, you know, encyclopedias upon encyclopedias upon encyclopedias at our fingertips. Knowledge has increased. Many are running to and fro. 
But it says what? Knowledge increase, but love grows cold. That's a different scripture, different time. So how does Jesus take these themes? And we're going to look at, Jesus uses these themes we've been talking about quite a bit. We're only going to look at one particular parable. We're going to look in Matthew 13. Just at one particular parable. So I want us to see some of these parallels. And, but he talks about it quite a bit. You can look at There's multiple parables and multiple things. But we covered a lot of it last week. But this week, I'm, I want us to see how the, this direct correspondence. All right. So this is Jesus speaking in parables. And he says this. Matthew 13. I'm starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them. And he said, The kingdom of heaven may be, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So a man goes out to a field and he's got good seed. And he's, he's sowing the good seed. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. How, how seriously mean is that? You have a beautiful wheat field and somebody comes in and sows weeds in the wheat. You know, we've heard this parable over and over. I mean, just, that's just plain evil. So when the plants came up and bore grain, and then the weeds appeared also. So they both come up together. You know, the weeds coming up, and there's a, this, this grain, this, this food, right? But then there's weeds that are appearing also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did, did you not sow good seed in your field? How, how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Well, then, then, then do you want us to go outside and gather the weeds? But he said, no, 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 lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Allow the weeds to grow with the wheat. This is interesting. This is interesting. So, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers. Now, notice, this is not the men who sowed all this working for them. These reapers, these are new characters coming into the story here. I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. What gets gathered first? Huh. That's with somebody's theology. What gets gathered first? And what happens to them? Buying them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So now there's some more in the, if you go to Matthew 13, you'll find some more. But we're going to jump down just straight to the explanation because this is kind of mixed with a few parables altogether. But I want to just get down to verse, 30, verse 36. We'll jump six verses ahead here. And, uh, and, and so then he left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So, like, Lord, show me what page in the encyclopedia this parable's on. <laughs> right? He's like, tell us what this means. And Jesus answers, and says, well, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Jesus is the one who sows the seeds of the kingdom of God into our hearts. This is the work of the Spirit. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit, what? Speaks of his words. Why? Because he glorifies the Father. Verse, 30, uh, verse 30, um, uh, 38, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy comes and sows. He has disciples just like Jesus has disciples. Verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and notice the reapers are angels, spiritual beings. Sounds a little bit like Revelation when the four where the angels be sent to the four corners of the earth to gather. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of age. Now I want to point this out before I get to the punchline here. What's what notice that he allows the sons of the kingdom to grow up with the sons of the enemy. Why? Well, Uh, part of understanding the parable is you don't know really which is which until the fullness of their fruit. You don't know which is which until the fullness of their fruit. And and so um, often, how often have people said, you know, why does God allow all this evil going on into the world? Well, there's a time when it won't be allowed. The reapers will come. But we're, but, but how many of us have the story and testimony that, yeah, I used to be on that team. But if you didn't say you, you haven't read the book. <laughs> Every one of us. Every one of us. We are that field. All right, so let me get back here. So just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. I want us to pick up something here. There's a lot of little details. Remember, theology through story. Jesus, is, as he's telling this, we should be picked. The kingdom of God is here. And it will be coming in fullness. But the kingdom of God is already here. That was the gospel. Repent. For the kingdom of God is here, over and over. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is pouring out the realm of light. It has entered into the realm of darkness and caused a transformation. We have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. We have been born anew. There is a new race of humanity. There's only two races, those born once and those born twice. anew into the kingdom of God. Notice what gets taken out are the lawbreakers who don't belong in it. That's what gets removed. Again, I know that's messing with a little bit of theology here, but I'm just reading what the text says. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm telling you, Jesus, you know, how many times I've read, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's the, he's the angry God, and Jesus is the sweet, nice, easy God. I, how many times I have read Jesus say this? Jesus said this, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. John five twenty two. What do you think judgment's going to happen in judgment? He who has ears, let him hear. Oh, no, I skipped the verse, sorry. Then, what will happen to the righteous? They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We just read that in Daniel. Then... We will see the resurrection of the dead. They will shine like the sun. We have a resurrection of the evil who are caught, weeping, gnashing of teeth, 
We have a resurrection of the righteous shining like the sun. Jesus is borrowing words right out of Daniel. And those who are wise, here it is, we read it, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. What makes the sky bright? I hope you all think it's the sun. I hope you do. So. <laughs> I hope you can make that leap, you know, just saying. <laughs> all right. So verse 4, but Daniel said, shut up the word, seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to, to, to and fro. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, and there were two others, one on this, uh, this bank of the stream and one on uh, that bank of the stream. So, so Daniel's standing by a river. There's this divine man kind of hovering over the waters, you know, speaking to him. And now two other divine individuals, the angels, messengers show up, and they're there as well. And, uh, and so now all of a sudden Daniel's going to get a little... He's going to get to, you know, be the fly on the wall and hear them have a conversation. Now, that's kind of cool. How many would like to hear a conversation between divine beings going on? You know, this is exactly what Peter, James, and John, when they were taken to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Why? Because here's Jesus, and who shows up? Moses and Elijah, and what are they doing? They're having a conversation. These guys get to sit there. I'm like, how cool is that? Well, this is Daniel's experiencing a little bit of this. He's sitting there watching, listening to this conversation. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, so these guys are, you know, he doesn't know their names, you know the other. So, so one guy says to, to the guy clothed in linen, this divine being, who was above the waters of the stream? I told you, he was hovering over the, the waters here. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Notice, the divine beings are wanting to know the time of the end just like we do. Isn't that fascinating? They have minds. They have curiosities. They, have, they, they, they think they're imagers of God. Just like us. They're imaging him in the heavenly realms. We image him on earth. That's cool. We get these little pieces to see the reality of what it is we're reading here. But if you're not paying attention, you miss it. Verse 7, and I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. The shattering of the people of the holy people. I'm going to cut straight to the punchline, and we're going to prove this out, and you'll see it. But the bottom line says, the people of God are going to be under persecution and tribulation until the time ends, period. The people of God are going to be under persecution and tribulation until the time of the end. But there's going to be a time. See, one of the things that the book of Daniel points out over and over is evil will be evil and will continue to be evil. But God says this much and no more. But there will be a time when he just plain says no more. And so he's telling them right here. Uh, we're going to break it down a little more in this, but that's what he says. I heard, and I did not understand, Daniel says. So he's narrating for us here. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Notice Daniel, he's got some boldness here. 
these two angels are having this conversation with the divine being, and this, this information is being passed back and forth. Now, Daniel was already told, that's all the revelation you get. Shut up and seal it. And so he gets to listen in a little bit, and so he's starting to try to get more information. This is really, it's so human, it's not funny. Well, can I get just a little bit more? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, can you explain that piece to me? <laughs> this is great. This is how this book ends. Theology through story. And he said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel, I already told you. I'm not telling you anymore. But he does give him a little bit more because that's grace. That's love. He says, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The, the, the weeds will grow up with the wheat. The weeds will grow up with the wheat. How long? Until the time of the end. See how these weave together? These stories, you've got to take these pieces to see the whole. This reminds us of Jesus' words. What did he say? None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. This should remind us of Jesus' words. Watch this. Enter how? By the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So which gate do we want to enter by? The narrow gate, not the wide gate. So what does it take for us to get to the end? What does it take to get there? Well, he says, And from the, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. There you go. Everybody, pull your calendars out, you know, 30 days till Christmas. 29 days till Christmas, right? No. What do you mean you don't know the day of the hour? He just told us, right? We just, we just got to figure out when that taken away thing is and the abomination thing is. If we figure that out, well, we got the countdown, right? Yeah. A lot of people have tried that. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. But then it says, blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. Why this? Why is it that it's going to take 1290, but you've got to wait 1335? How does the rest, how does the rest, so, what, so this, this period of time is about three and a half years. You know, it's, it's approximately three and a half years. So what we're going to say is, what is this three and a half years? If this, if this is the time of the end, and you've got this three and a half year thing going on, how does this three and a half years appear in the, everything else we've been studying up to this point? Where are we, we're going to go back and we're going to look at what does a three and a half year mean in chapter 7? What does it mean in chapter 8? What does it mean in chapter 9? Because it's all been through this whole apocryphal section. We've been seeing this period of time over and over again. What does it mean in those others? All right, so in Daniel 7.25, guess what? There's a little horn. This little horn figure who is this antichrist type. So we're going all the way back here to the, 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 the wicked kings like Belshazzar. This, this, this wicked kings. These, the, the, this, this little horn is a figure that represents wicked kings. And what does he do? He shall wear out the saints of the Most High for a time, times, and half a time. Isn't that what the divine being just said? It's going to wear out the saints of the Most High 
for a time, time and a half a time, which we know when we when we went back and looked, that's about three and a half years. I'm going to suggest to you that doesn't mean three and a half years. It means a type of time. From the entering into last days, we have entered into the time, the three and a half year period of time, the 1290 days, the time of tribulation. It is a time of tribulation from the moment the last days begin until they end. Daniel uh, verse 8, 9 through 14, another vision of another little horn. This is, a, again, the Antichrist figure just being told to us a different way. And we, in, in, uh, um, so, so what does this one do? He shall make the sanctuary desolate for 2,300 evenings and mornings before it is restored. So guess how long that is? It's a little over three years, about 3.15 years. We're talking in this ge- same general time frame. And I would suggest, again, though we can pinpoint... Certain beings, certain individuals like Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who clearly created the abomination of desolation. But when we move into the New Testament, Jesus says, yet there will be another abomination of desolation. And there was. The Romans did it in 70 AD. Yet is that the end? No, because we're told there are other Antichrist type figures. So it's not about the three and a half year. Literally, it's about the type of time. Now, does anybody know? This, um, because I'm going to give us some math here and show us something cool here. Okay, I'm a Bible nerd. I think it's cool. I hope you all do. But does anybody know when the last days began? From the scriptures. Yes, they had. They had already begun by the time Peter writes about it. But Peter also declares when they begun. Um, I would say that's the birthing of the last days. Pentecost, okay, 75 points right there, 75 points. Pentecost, Peter says, this is not strange, the, 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 the fire, the flames of tongues are falling, the wind is coming. All of a sudden, you have all the disciples who are gathered together and they're preaching the gospel, and they're preaching it in languages of the nations. And Peter says, we're not drunk, this isn't strange, this is what was prophesied by Joel, and Joel says, this is the last days. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is this is this civilizational moment in which that that reset the clock for humanity, counting down the last days. We have entered into this time in which we we see repeatedly antichrist type figures rising up, bringing tribulation, bringing trial, bringing trouble for the people of God over and over. You don't think so? How about being one of those believers who were crucified by Nero and lit on fire? How about being believers right now? And and there's more believers right now, today, being killed and martyred for their faith than at any time in history. Right now, today. So. Now, this is kind of, like I said, this next section is Bible nerd cool. This is from Joyce Baldwin's commentary on Daniel. So if we go back to chapter 9, so we've looked at chapter 8, how they dealt with the three and a half years. Chapter 7, we looked at that. Chapter 9, and we look at this three and a half year period. Chapter 9 gives us the whole 70 weeks, right? So in chapter 9, we get this 70 weeks is the time frame for everything to be complete. Now, 70 weeks is important because it's... Um, um, uh, uh, weeks are years, seven sevens, 490 years. 
Well, every 49 years, that next year is a jubilee. Every 49 years, so it's 10 jubilees. So 70 weeks is 10 jubilees. That's like complete perfection in, uh, for a number in scriptures. The time for complete perfection, for total completeness. All right. So what's interesting, though, and I'm going to point it out and actually show you the verses. When you read through chapter 9 and you want to add up to the 79 weeks, when you actually read the text, it actually only adds up to 69 and a half weeks. Huh. Check this out. It says it's, it's seven weeks, and then there's another part of the verse that says 62 weeks, and there's another per, part of the week that says a half a week. And if you add them up, you get to 69 and a half weeks. It leaves out a half of a week. A half of a week is what? Three and a half days or three and a half years. Hmm. So here, we're going to read it. This is in Daniel 9. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then... For 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So notice we have the 70 weeks, seven weeks. Now we have the 62 weeks. And then it says, and then after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to that end, there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. Uh, and then he shall make... A strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. What did the guy say? From the point of sen- the, the ending of the sacrifice and offerings, three and a half. A times, times, and times, and it's over. 1,290 days. Interesting. So half a week, he shall end it. And on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Until the desolator is said, no more, you, God says, stop to the tribulation of his people. And this, we read this in chapter 9. It's corresponding to what we've already read. So, kind of put it all together. I know it's a lot of math, a lot of numbers, and I know it's late in the evening and we've already had our, our day. But I'm going to, for those that like math, we're going to hit this. So a week equals seven years. So we get seven weeks, that's 49 years. That's a jubilee. A jubilee is, a t- is the time in which all the captives are set free. Every, all inheritances return to the original owners. And there's a complete reset in the land of Israel in a jubilee. Okay? So that's a jubilee. And 70 is 490 years, which well, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. So then we get 62 weeks. 62 weeks is 434 years. You just take and multiply that by 7. So if you have your calculator, you can. My fingers didn't. I used to use a calculator. My fingers don't go that high. So then a half a week is three and a half years. So that's 69 and a half. That's 486 and a half years. Well, what did we get prophesied at the end by this divine man? Another half a week. Three and a half years. We're short three and a half years here in chapter 9. Chapter 12, he prophesied that. When you add that together, you get your four, full 490 years. The time of the end will come, and it will be a jubilee. It will be the 10th jubilee. Now, now, it's not literal. Don't take this literal. It's not like there's going to be 10 jubilees. It means completeness. It means perfection. It's when Jesus sat down and quoted from the book of Isaiah. He said, the captives are set free. This is the, 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 the end of all tribulation. 
Now, that 1,290 days is just about three and a half years. So this three and a half years becomes representative of, once again, a type of time. It represents the fullness of tribulation throughout the current last days. We're in the last days. So it's the fullness of tribulation that's going to happen in this period of time. It's carried on by evil kings in the spirit of Antichrist right up to the time of Antichrist. Um, this, is, this is the pattern we've seen throughout the book of Daniel. You had Belshazzar. You had the little horn in eight, 7. You had the little horn in 8. You have very, very specifically Antiochus IV Epiphanes prophesied. And then you had the king who is to come. I mean, four different evil kings are, are represented and presented to us right here. Now, I want to show you something. This is out of, this is out of the book of Revelation. Watch this. You can see where Revelation borrows this concept from Daniel to show us it is a type of time. This is Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Who is the temple of God? I just gave you a big hint. We are. Okay? By the, most likely by the time this is being written, the temple's been destroyed. And by the way, Revelation actually says we are the temple of God. In multiple places, multiple times. So let's go out and measure the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Would somebody like to take a guess how long a period of time is 42 months? Three and a half years. It has been given over for this tribulation period of time, for three and a half years. But wait, that's not all. There's more. Let's go down to chapter 13, verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. In Daniel, what, was, what, what character was uttering haughty and blasphemous words? Well, very specifically, there was a part of the beast. This is worth a lot of points. 120 points if you can come up with it. The little horn, Marco. I knew you'd come through, Marco. That's right. 120 points for Marco. He is the point bank. If anybody needs to borrow points, he has a very low interest rate. Very low interest rate. All right, so... Yes, the little horn utters haughty and blasphemous things over and over in Daniel. And here we have the same motif, the beast. And it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? Three and a half years, 42 months. Huh. Huh. Somebody say something that want to make you say, huh. Verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. What is the little horn allowed to do? Make war on the saints and conquer them. What is the little horn allowed to do? Desolate the temple. And authority was given over, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwelt on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name... Huh, where have we read this before? Has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Do you see that? The correspondence to, to Daniel? Everything we've already read? Wow. Even on down to this phrase. 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Right on down to that phrase. Verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the, slur, with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. What this is saying is you and I as believers are not only called to live well, but to die well. That's not something we say in church. We don't read those parts of the Bible. Why else do I need endurance and faith? To everyone who is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. To everyone who is to die with the sword, with the sword he will die. Who were the three closest people to Jesus when he walked on the earth? Hmm. How many of them lived a full life of those three? Only one. John. But he was boiled in oil and exiled. Yes. But he died a natural death. Not long into the book of Acts, Peter's in jail. Why is Peter in jail? Anybody know? Because James had already been killed. Herod had already taken him captive and cut his head off. Interesting, cut his head off. Where we see that motif. Had already taken him captive and cut his head off. And Peter's in jail and he's, what's he doing? He's asleep. The next day he's going to be beheaded. What's he doing? I might as well get a good night's sleep. (laughs) How many of us are doing that? He's dying well. He's enduring in faith. In the middle of that, an angel shows up, wakes up. Peter doesn't even think it's real. Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. His handcuffs, his chains, they all fall off. He says, stand up. The the door opens up. He walks right past the guards. They don't even see him. You know, it's that Star Wars, you know. Take me to your leader, you know. that. (laughs) He just walks right past him and goes out. He says, all right, go down. And and then he says, all right, leave town. Don't hang. Look, when there's a chance to escape, escape. Okay, it's not about it's not about having a wish for it, but it is about understanding this life is temporary. There is a greater glory that's coming. The glory we are to live for in this life is the glory of our King. And when we live for the glory of our King in this life, we demonstrate the cross. And when we demonstrate the cross, we will demonstrate resurrection. There is an inheritance and a reward that is coming that does not even compare to the worst that we could go through in this world. I don't even, I can't even comprehend that. I can't. I really can't. I have tried. I sit down and think about it, and I end up, like, wandering off thinking about other things. I can't think that big. You see, God knows how to keep those who are his through tribulation. Now, we can sit here and panic, and we can sit here and worry, and, and, and I understand that. I get that. We can be fearful. 
We don't live in that world. Do you know there are places in the world where, there, the, where, where, where um, tribulation as a believer is so ubiquitous. It's so ubiquitous. It, it happens so much that people are not actually even trusted to begin to be um, considered trustworthy until they've been in prison for at least three years for their faith. Yeah. You want to read a, read a book on this that will change your worldview on it. It's a, the, called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. In fact, I may play that again. I still have that video. Um, some of you saw that video. How many saw the video, The Insanity of God? I, st- I, have, I got it for a year. I got a full year license to show the church. I may play it again one more time. It's powerful where we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and look, they're, they're not... Here's the thing, is they're not going, oh, why did God have to let this happen to me? They're going, I, I love, I want to live for Jesus. Lord, just help me to be faithful with, to you through this. And then, but they also don't go to the people in the West who are not being persecuted and say, well, no, you, you're lucky, you know, you, you're not going. No, you know what they want? They want us to live for Jesus. Live in the freedom God's given you with all that you are to bring glory to your king. He said, they, they say that will make what we are doing worth it. When we as brothers and sisters live our lives for the full glory of God wherever we are. God knows how to keep those who are his through tribulation. Listen. God never gives us grace for what isn't. God doesn't give us grace for what might be. He gives us grace for what is. My grace is sufficient for you. He gives us grace for the moment. He gives us grace for right now. And there is a sense to which we are called to die now. What? To ourself. To our will. To our plans. To our flesh. And that's hard. So, Revelation 12, here's another section. Guess what we're going to find out? Another three and a half years. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Notice the same period of time. Here is this woman fleeing this persecution and God is keeping her through it. God knows how to keep his children through this time. He knows how. Some will lose their life. Some won't. But God keeps us regardless. So, the visions um, of Daniel 9 account for 69 and a half of the 70 years. We get to chapter 12 here. This divine man, he completes that 70 years with this final three and a half. And when he does, Revelation's finished. Here it is, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there should be 1,290 days. So basically from, you know, this Pentecost event. Don't think of it as like one day, one time from this period of time. The temple was destroyed. That uh, um, desolation is no more. We have entered into the last days. We are now in this tribulation time. Seventy weeks equals 490 years at the fullness at Ten jubilees, it's a symbolic for the fullness of time, all being complete. 
So why then the extra 40 day, 45 days? Why this, this 1,336? Because he says, you know, to those who will endure the, to 135, you know, that now you've got something going on here, right? So what is it? It is lim, literally symbolic of enduring to the end. You know, um, I don't know how many remember, I forget which, it was one of the hurricanes that were just that, I think it was Ike. Electricity went out, and a lot of people, some lost electricity for a week, some lost for two weeks, some lost for three weeks, some lost for four weeks. We lost for two weeks at our house. And, and so um, uh, when they, they said that the electricity, you, it's only going to be down for one week in our neighborhood. They kept telling us on the news, you're only going to be down one week. We'll have it back up one week. It'll only be one week. And I remember we, um, we get through the week, and it's in the middle of the summer. It was, or I think it was September. It was a hot time. Um, and... Uh, and Diane, we, she and I were having conversations. She's like, oh, we can make a week. It's no big deal. Not a problem. And, you know, we got everything figured out. We got it all planned. We get to a week, and there's no electricity. And it's like, well, but they said a week. Then there's two days. No, they, they said a week. Then there was three days. But they said a week. You know, two weeks into it, when's electricity coming on? And then the electricity comes on. And you go, ah. Oh, it was only two weeks. <laughs> All joking aside, this is the point. When you're enduring through tribulation, 1,290 days feels like 1,335. This is the point. The point is making it to the end. This is what he's saying. We're in this period of time. It's about enduring. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. Blessed is he who endures to the end, who makes it all the way. Here it is in Mark 13. You ready? And you will be hated by all for my namesake. So how many like that is a promise from Jesus? <laughs> I want the one my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Can I have that one, Jesus? Anybody have Mark 13, 13 in their Bible? <laughs> or Jerry, tear that page out. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hmm. wonder where you got that. You see, there's a, there's a sense in which we're called to endure through all this. We're, we're called to endure. And how do we do that? We do it, first of all, if we're not talking about this, if we ignore these pages of the Bible, if we pretend like these aren't there, if we, want to, if we want to come up with a theology that somehow makes all this disappear, when we go through it, we won't be enduring. Because we'll be saying, they said one week, where's the electricity? Where are you, Jesus? Why aren't you hearing my prayers? You're a God who hears my prayers. But that, but that page that said some will be slain, you see, if we don't do this conversation and take this seriously, we are not disciples of our Lord. And we are not prepared for whatever it is He might want to bring in our lives. Look, I'm not saying 
that these things are going to happen. I don't know. All I, I mean, and like what I mean by that, I'm not saying that uh, the people sitting here in this room are going to have to stand in front of someone actually taking your life because you've named Jesus. I don't know. I don't know what God may call you to, where you may go, what may happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. My point is, if we don't understand, there is a point to that is the state of the church. And that means if one person is in church is going through it, we are all going through it. And if we ignore that, we are ignoring our own body. If we are ignoring it, then that means we are literally not bringing the kingdom of God where we are. Because we're not paying attention to the kingdom of God. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That almost sounds like a conditional salvation, doesn't it? Let me tell you what it says. It says enduring to the end demonstrates that you really had faith. Jesus asked the question, I'm telling you all these things are going to happen. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And what I really wonder is if there actually will be faith on the earth when I come back. Jesus asked that question. I wonder if it will be. Verse 13, but you, Daniel, go on to the end and rest. And you will arise for your allotted inheritance at the end of days. And that's how the book ends. Do you see what this divine being just told Daniel? Daniel, I'm not going to tell you any more details than I've given you. I've given you, you're, you're not going to, it's not going to be all worked out for it. That The time, the day and the hour, only the Father knows that. No one knows. You'll know the season. It'll be time of tribulation. God's, but listen, listen, listen. I'm telling you, Daniel, as sure as God is in heaven, it will not last forever. There will be a time when it will be over and God says it is over. We are called to endure, but you, Daniel, you've already endured. You've lived out your endurance in your life. It's time for you to rest. My good and faithful son. And guess what, Daniel? You're going to rest, and then you're going to resurrect. And when you do, you're going to get an inheritance. How many of us have actually can stop and consider? I want you to stop and think right now. There is literally a will in heaven with your name on it for your inheritance. I have just actually thought about that. Daniel's literally being promised right here. You will resurrect. You will arise for your allotted inheritance. There is some place on this earth that's got the name Daniel's property on it. You will have an allotted inheritance. That's amazing. How many of us actually think about that? Or are we living for an inheritance in this life? Oh, my goodness. If there's one thing I've seen people fight over, oh, wow. Family member pass away. See, family members hating on one another. I mean, hating on one another. We have a father who's leaving us an inheritance. You know, so Daniel's promised a resurrection and inheritance, and we're also promised the same thing. 
Peter not only told us about the last days, he told us about the inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God! Blessed be our Lord Jesus. Why? According to his great mercy. Now, how great is this mercy? This mercy is so great, he literally pours out mercy on, on, uh, uh, on a world that has no characteristic that deserves it. There is nothing about humanity that deserves the mercy of God. Go read Romans. What does he say? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, there is none good, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. If God didn't seek us, we would not care. We'd be on our own in complete rebellion. That's how much mercy God has. So much grace he has. That's how loving he is. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Think about that for a minute. We were enemies. So according to his great mercy, what has he done? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In other words, what he means by a living hope, it just, it's not just like a way to like, uh, you know, give hope a good adv- uh, adjective to make it sound big. No, no, no. A hope of living forever, of being alive, of, oh, of resurrection, of, of living on this earth. That's a living hope. That means a, not a dying hope, not a get-to-heaven hope, a live-forever, eternal hope. We talked about this last week when we were looking at resurrection. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's how we know it's a living hope. Jesus Came back from the dead. Now catch this. To an inheritance. You and I are going to have a living hope here on earth through the resurrection to an inheritance. What kind of inheritance? It's not perishable. It can't be defiled. It can't be fading. Right now, it's kept in heaven for you. And and we are being guarded by God's power. Through faith. How do we endure to the end? Through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When do we get the inheritance? When it's revealed in the last time. See how this all ties together? Hmm. And so then the vision ends. The book's over. It's done. It's on the bank of the river where it started. There's two divine beings present. Daniel, here's this conversation here's about this time frame i love this this fact that he's trying to get more information out of them after it's like well you know i I hear you guys can i ask more questions can we get some more i love this it is so human he says nope it's over god alone knows this is tremper longman a quote from him god alone knows and that seems to be the point god knows that there is an end and he is that he is determined but we can't figure it out because we're not supposed to we're not supposed to know. But Jesus has given us the New Testament all throughout. There's clues. We'll know the season. We won't know. that We won't know. It. And we're to leave it to God. All right. So, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, 
because I'm about to go into just kind of a review of the whole book, kind of the big picture of the whole book, of what we did to, to close this out. But before I do, does anyone have a specific question on anything that we just covered in that last, last, last section? I want to stay, you know, a question to that. Any other question? Michelle, did you have a question? Okay. All right. So let's wrap it up. So Daniel 1, what? It was written in Hebrew, right? And it's all about main characters, settings, themes. We get these two human kings in the beginning of Daniel. We get Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who's coming down conquering Jerusalem. And we get Jehoiakim. He's the king, uh, uh, regent, ruling regent in, um, uh, uh, in, in um, Israel, Jehoiakim, in Judah. And so we also get these two gods that are set up. So we're getting these contrasts, kind of like this, this, uh, the pagan world battling the, the world of Israel. And you get the god of Nebuchadnezzar, and you get the god of Israel. So the story sets this up. It sets this up. Why? Because right away, it looks like the god of this world wins. It looks like Nebuchadnezzar and his god wins. Remember in the ancient world, if my kingdom defeats your kingdom, it's because my god is bigger than your god. That's the rule. That's playground rules, man. And you don't violate playground rules. Anybody ever been on a playground? You don't violate playground rules. That's the rule. My kingdom beats your kingdom. My god's bigger. Right? And so that's what's going on here. That's a setup. Why? Because we're made, it's made to think... And, and why? Because this is what the Israelites were thinking when they're going through this. When you're going through tribulation, when you're being taken apart, when you're being exiled, when everything in your world is turned upside down, you're asking yourself, how big is my God? And that's what's happening here. But it says this, Nebuchadnezzar looks like he's the powerful winner. He's taking the vessels from the temple. He's going to take them back to Babylon. But it says something in there twice. Twice it tells us it is the God of Israel who gave those things to Nebuchadnezzar. Huh? Huh? God let him win because he was going to work his purposes through him. God works his purposes in ways that we have no idea, no way to understand. But he is good. What we have to do is trust he is good and he is sovereign. When we trust he is good, when we trust he is sovereign, we can endure. We can endure. Because if he's good, he's got good purposes in whatever it is we go through. This theme continues through the whole book. It's literally one of the main themes of the whole book. Human kings are in conflict with the divine king. But it's no contest. Over and over, what happens? All power, all wisdom, all sovereignty belong to the God of heaven. He gives it as he wills to human kings. But here's the thing. He doesn't give it without holding us accountable. What he gives, he holds us accountable for giving. Jesus tells parable after parable. What have you been given that he's going to hold you accountable for? In one parable, he says he's giving you talents. And another says he's giving you minas. And we're all going to stand, and he's going to ask us, what would you do with it? In the same way, he held Nebuchadnezzar account. In the same way, he holds Belshazzar account. All right. So the, who are the main characters? We get Daniel. We get Hananiah, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What do we see from them? They have, they demonstrate through story what it means to endure in faith in the midst of tribulation. And what does God do? God pours blessing on them in the very place that seems like there's no favor. 
You see, when you endure, you have the beast trampling the world, but you have the woman taken off and being protected by God at the same time. So how many of you remember Elijah in in, um, the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah? Okay, and so he prophesies and he says, you know, for three years, there's going to be drought. He says that, right? And and, and, uh, and so Ahab, King Ahab and Jezebel, they're looking everywhere for him. They want to kill him. They want to kill him. And um, and he's high. First, he's down by the river and, and, the, and the birds bring him food. So God's protecting him and providing for him. But then the river dries up. Um, and so God leads him to Zarephath. And there's a widow there who feeds him. And supernaturally, every day, bread appears. You know, the, the flour, there's flour in the jar, and she's able to make bread. So God literally provides supernaturally. Does anybody know where Zarephath is, actually is located? Where in the world is Zarephath? It's in the region of Tyre and Sire, Sidon. Do you know who is from Tyre and Sidon? Jezebel. God is hiding Elijah in Jezebel's hometown. Tell me that's not funny. Yeah, it is so cool. I remember the first time I was studying through it and saw that. I made a message. I called it the tale of two women. (laughs) Is it the tale of two cities? Is it the tale of two women? This is awesome. God knows how to do this and say he's doing this with with these guys. Even in exile, they learn how to live in pagan alien land. They learn how to maintain a biblical worldview when when they are indoctrinated and inculcated with a pagan worldview. And they learn how to serve faithfully the human rulers God puts over them with integrity in spite of the fact that they're pagan. So then we get to move into chapters 2 through 7. And what do we learn here? It changes language, the whole thing, and the whole structure changes. We get this chiastic structure. So we get, this, we get all these symmetries going on. We get these stories that counteract one another and are, and are partners with one another, bringing us to a point. And, and, and the whole point of this section is literally God gives us a broad view of all of human history. And what we see, this broad view of all of human history, God is in the middle of it. Someone asked me not too long ago, is God just like created everything and he's just like out there? He wound it all up and he's away and he's not involved? No, he's involved in all of it. He is, he is a close person. This, this, this story gives us a close personal view of God interacting with humans in very difficult circumstances. We specifically see God interacting with Gentile kings. Um, both those who respond well and those who are absolutely despots. So when we take this as a whole, if we study this whole section, we take it as a whole, it grounds us in a worldview, in a biblical worldview about our world and our place in it. We are as much in the story of the Bible as Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach were in the story in Babylon. They were, listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're living their lives. They weren't thinking, I'm living out a Bible story. Daniel wasn't thinking, I'm living out a Bible story. He was just living his life. He was just living his life. And he wrote it down. We're doing the same thing. How do we know? The story's not over with. The Bible's finished when writing. It's sealed up. It's shut up. That's what the divine man said. But it's playing out. And we're the players. 
we're living it out. And it will be known. All right. So, God is overall. He's active. He's active in the lives of his people. His people can trust him. It doesn't matter what's going on. He is not asleep when it comes to looking at world leaders. You can look at world leaders and, and think, well, you know, God's asleep because they're just, you know, completely motivated by the devil. Well, the devil may be motivating them, but it doesn't mean God's not using them. Doesn't mean God's not going to work his plan. Read Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2. The kings of this world rail against God. God sits on his throne and laughs. Really? I remember when... Um, I have permission to tell this story. So, my kids. I, um, my son, uh, when he was little... Anybody ever heard of a strong-willed child? My son was the textbook strong-willed child when he was little. And I won't go into all the details. But I'll just say, when he threw a temper tantrum, there were a couple of times my wife actually called me at work and said, hey, you need to come home. Um, yeah, you need to come home. I can't handle him. And a couple of times I, I, did, I had to come home to help. And, um, till, and a lot of it was until God taught me how to deal with him as a father. Once I learned how to deal with him as a father, things changed. Um, but uh, nonetheless... Um, so we, we got quite used to some, some temper tantrums that were just, I mean, uh, off the charts. And, um, and so then Brenda's 21 months younger. So when she hit about two or three, uh, I remember one day when she threw a temper tantrum and, and we're all sitting there watching her throw this temper tantrum. And I remember looking at my wife go, Oh, that's cute. <laughs> it's like that's not a temper tantrum. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Look at that. She thinks that's a temper tantrum. <laughs> and uh God sitting on his throne laughing. Really? He's not he's not sitting on his throne wringing his hands going, "What am I going to do? How if I can handle this?" What he wants us to do is trust him. Now look, it's not a laughing matter. The, the matter, the pain, the suffering. That's not a, that's not the point. The, the the point of the story wasn't isn't that the pain is a laughing matter. The point of the story is that God is that big. He's that good. He's that suffer, uh, 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 sovereign, and He works good purposes through it. And the way through it is trusting Him. So we get to this um, kingdom. The, the, we not only get a broad view of the world, we see over and over the kingdom of God coming in all its fullness. Um, and, and, and so we're learning about um, life outside the promised land, life under human rulers who don't fear God, and God being in control and the future belonging to him. But then we get to chapter 7, and it's a hinge chapter. Something happens in chapter 7. So chapter 7 is fascinating. Why? Because there's stories and themes and motifs and language that connect directly back to everything that came before it. But the type of language changes. And the type of story changes and connects to everything that comes after it. It's literally this hinge in which the whole book seals together. And it's that scene where we see the Ancient of Days seated, and the, and the, and the, and the Divine Council seated on thrones, and the one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, and the consummation of all. We see the completion of all happening right here. We get the greatest detail of the, of the, f- the fulfillment of all of history right here in chapter 7. 
You see, we're used to reading books where the big detail comes at the end. The Bible's not like that. So often, the main point's in the middle. And that's what we get with chapter 7 here, um, that's connecting all this together. And then we lead into chapter 12, and we get these visions. And these visions start off, they're kind of fuzzy. And the more we read, the the more of these visions we get, the more we see, they become more clear and more clear and more clear. So we get into chapter 11, and we get details so detailed, you could literally sit there, open up a history book, open up the Bible, and just change king and put a name in. Change him and this person put a name in right out of history books. It is so clear. It's the most clear, the most detailed uh, um, uh, uh, of anything anywhere in Scripture that is a prophetic nature to it. Completely. That's why some don't think it actually is prophetic. They think that it happened beforehand. It's that detailed. All right, so that's kind of the whole book. Now, now again, uh, we're going to compare these two halves, and we'll finish up with this. So we have these two halves. We've got 1 through 6 in these stories, and so we have 7 through 12. We get these two court scenes, right, in 1 and 6. So what do we got? We have Jews that are living in foreign nations. In 1 through 6. And, 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 and it's all about individual Jews being faith, faithful through persecution in a foreign land. So it's, it's talking about you, me, the individual who has to live through whatever we face. But then we get into the second half of the book, and it's about the nation and kings coming against the nation. And foreign invading is calling the nation to be faithful. And so they're going from, from, from being carried off persecution, think this is the worst thing that could ever happen, being carried off into exile in the land. And then they get back to the land thinking this is the greatest thing that could happen. And guess what happens? Now, I'm not making a one-for-one correspondence here. I'm just applying this to real life to how this can apply to real life, okay? I'm not trying to say this is prophetic of this, but I'm applying this to real life to show this how we can see this, this being a I'm going to use a real-life analogy to see how we can see this being applied. The nation of Israel was exiled from their land since 135. Now, not all Jews, many still stayed in the land, but most were dispersed throughout the world by the Romans in 135. And what they experienced all throughout history, and far too often at the hands of Christians, is horrible persecution wherever they lived. And finally, after the 17th century pogroms, where they were um, just just wantonly killing Jews, in the late 1800s came this movement to say, hey, why don't we, instead of being spread out, go back to the, uh, uh, to the land of Israel, to, to the land in the Middle East, with the rest of the people who were living there, to, to escape this persecution from around the world that we're all experiencing as individuals. Well, then you had the event of the Holocaust, which demonstrated how much the world, you know, you got Hitler trying to round everybody up. And you have, quite frankly, there were a lot of other countries who were trying in, in, um, in the Middle East who were trying to help Hitler round them up. I don't know how many people are aware of that history. They wanted to kill them all. And it was out of that that the nations of the world got together and said, okay, we'll at least have one place in the world that's safe to be a Jew. Just one place. And the, literally the day it started, the very day it started, war started. And not just now against individuals in different places, but now against the nation. Isn't that fascinating? 
That's exactly what we're looking at here in the book of Daniel. I'm not saying Daniel prophesying that. I'm not. What I'm saying is this, this whole period of time as believers, these things apply to our lives in real and practical ways. These things that we're going through and experiencing, Daniel went through and experienced. Israel went through and experienced. And, and we as the church are going through this and experiencing, and we're called to endure through all of this. These aren't just good stories to, to, put, to put together and try to figure out, you know, the math. So the Jews lost their land. They lost their temple, lost their king. When they get restored to the land, they get persecuted for it. Um, ultimately, the temple was destroyed. They're taken into exile. They think that's the worst. When they come back, they're going to find out that their temple that, that they rebuild is completely defiled. And the, the latter is worse than the beginning. But here's the point. Through it all, God never leaves his throne. Evil is on a leash, and this is super important. Though evil looks like it's unfettered, it's not. God says this far and no more. There, uh, he will end it in the right time. The kingdom of God will fully erupt into this world. The kingdom of God will fully erupt. The be, uh, erupt with an eye, not erupt like a, like, a, like a volcano erupting out. Erupt like coming in, breaking in. The kingdom of God will fully break into this world, which means it has already begun. It begun with the Holy Spirit breaking in, which means you and I are the eruption of the kingdom of God in this world. And he will set up an indestructible eternal kingdom. One like a son of man will inherit this kingdom. The holy ones of the Most High will receive it from him. In the same way, he ascended into the heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he received the Holy Spirit, and he pours out the Holy Spirit onto us right now. And that same way, he has the inheritance over this entire world, and he's going to pour that out on us. That's what this is telling us, right up to the last verse. And the New Testament tells us the same thing. One like the Son of Man has come. He declares the kingdom has come. It's already here. But it's not yet full. He will come again to bring it to complete fullness. The rock of Daniel 2 will fill the whole earth and evil will be no more. But before then, there's going to be horrific evil. And kings like Belshazzar, the blasphemer, evil kings are going to rise. Kings like Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. Horrific evil will come. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And we see a pattern. What's the pattern? The progressive evil of human kings and... The progressive coming of the immutable, indestructible, unchangeable sovereignty of God's kingdom. And that's what the book of Daniel is about. He's the one who holds the life and the breath of every ruler, whether they're opposed to him or not. And even when it seems as though God's powerless, he is working great power. When it, when, when, where is God when all is awry? Suffering will come, whether for sin or from evil ones. And even when it seems God is powerless, he's working his great power. And here's the point. The world's not on our side. The world's not on our side. The question is, are we on God's side? When Joshua came into the promised land, and he's got the armies of, of, the, of, the, of Israel behind him, he sees this great warrior standing in front of him, and he challenges him. Are you on our enemy's side or our side? And he says, neither. He says, but I am the captain of the hosts of heaven, 
of the armies of heaven. Whose side are you on? (laughs) Joshua takes off his shoes. He's on holy ground. He goes, I'm on your side. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. Whose side are we on? Are we on the one? Are we on the side of the one who wins? Are we on the side of the one who defeats evil? Are we on the one who, who defeats all human kingdoms? Who sets up his own kingdom on earth for us to reign with him? That's the book of Daniel. It's genius literature. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's complex. It's timeless. And ultimately, God rules. Amen? Yeah. And uh, you want to, as soon as you turn me off, the um, deal off, we'll, we'll open it up for comments and questions. Actually, I forgot to pray. Let's pray. Father, may we be inspired and motivated by your word. May it move in us. May we want to live missionally like Daniel lived missionally. May we want to be faithful in our generation like David was faithful in his generation. May we desire to endure to the end that we might receive the inheritance you have for us. Stir us up, Lord. Stir us up. Stir us up. You are looking for your people to be your people in this time and in this age. Stir up your kingdom here on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.